Testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing, one, two, three. We are on the air. This is Thesis. I mean, the Persian Empire's army was so big, they would dry out the rivers. But Herodotus says that in his, in his book, when, when all my life, growing up, through the 80s, all I remember being taught at school is that we should be colorblind. But now it seems like these people that call themselves progressives are looking back past the civil rights to where now I should care about what skin color I am or the other person is. Educate yourself, open your eyes. Don't be led around like sheep or cattle. Government will always push its boundaries, no matter who is in charge. Today's show, I wanted to talk about a little bit about uh, like legalization and things like that. When markets get saturated, only the strong survive. We see the crossover from what religion teaches us about behaviors, and we can see the proof in the science. I'm not scared of the virus. I'm not scared of the pandemic. You know why? Because I know that there is something greater than all of this. This is Thesis. Everything is everything. I am your host, Jay Marie. Three, two, one. We are on the air. This is Thesis. Everything is everything. I am your host, Jay Marie. How are y'all doing out there? Hope you find yourself well today. Uh, quick shout out to all of our listeners out there. Um, uh, in Dublin, Ireland, what's up, Dublin? Merida, uh, Yucatan, Playa del Carmen, Texas, Washington, Oklahoma, California. Hey guys, thank you for listening. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for showing up today. We are gonna nerd out today, and I got a treat for you guys. So I've been doing a lot of research lately, um, having some fun actually with it. Uh, been studying um, today. Actually, I w- I went back and uh, was listening to. Herodotus histories uh, man that is so interesting um, I want to do a show on that and I know I keep promising you guys shows on this and that but it's okay you know in the last show I brought up uh, Plato so I figured I'd dig in a little bit into Plato's Republic so that's what we're gonna do today we're gonna nerd out um, but I got a treat for you guys because so we're gonna follow along um, I got the audio here uh, we're gonna follow along but we're gonna do a uh, a, a specific uh, part of the book. Uh, now, Plato's Republic is um, it's pretty pretty nice sized book. I mean, we're probably looking at about uh, you know three hundred and eighty pages. Not too bad. Esther, but anyway, um, we're gonna we're gonna dig in a little bit into um, part nine. Uh, we're gonna start at book six and go through book nine. So book six, uh, it's about democracy, uh, and then uh, the democratic character is book seven. Book eight is tyranny, and then book nine is the tyrannical character. So we're going to go through that, stopping uh, periodically and uh, discussing several things that he says. Um, actually, so so when we go through these books, they're really short. They just label them as such, you know, kind of like they do in the Bible, you know, chapter and verse type thing. This is how they label it. So when you want to reference something, you know what, um, what part, what book, you know, and it helps it helps guide you to to the right spot. Uh, so we are going to start on um, on part nine. Now the reason the reason I wanted to get into this is because first of all, I mean I love Plato's Republic. It's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, <laughs> book. Um, you know, philosophy. Of course, you guys know that. 
But there's so much wisdom in there, and I wanted to share some of that wisdom with you guys because, um, you know, Plato wrote this uh, somewhere right around 300 B.C., something like that, give or take a little bit. Uh, 300 B.C., he was in Athens, um, and he, had, he got so much correct. Um, as you'll see, when we, cause see, so uh, Plato's Republic is modern, modern, um, modern historians call it a uh, a fictional dialogue, but when you study Socrates and how he speaks, I I've come to well my conclusion is that it's it's an actual dialogue, uh, like if Plato was just a scribe, because the wisdom that comes from from Socrates in the Republic, because the Republic is a dialogue between Socrates and some of his friends. And they're looking into the nature of, of man and the character of man, how to build societies and cities, and like they go into all of these things, right? Uh, and that's what the book is about. So we're going to jump in, uh, and I hope you enjoy this. And uh, like I said, we're going to be stopping periodically. I'm going to follow along. Unfortunately, I have a different translation. Uh, you guys out there who study history or these ancient writings, you know, they have several translations. And, you know, we could, we could tell that people do different translations for copyright, you know, stuff. And that's fine because they basically say the exact same thing. Now, it's not going to be word for word, but, but you know, it's okay. It, we're going to deal with it and um, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a big problem. Uh, so... Um, let me go ahead and, uh, cue up the sound here. I got my book ready to go. We're going to follow along. This is, uh, Plato's Republic, um, part nine, book six on democracy. Okay. So let's go ahead and, uh, let's go ahead and get this started. And we're going to follow along. Okay. Democracy would seem to be our next object of inquiry how it arises and what it is like when it does arise. Isn't the way a city changes from oligarchy to democracy something like this? Isn't it the result of their greed in pursuing the ideal they have set themselves, the requirement to become as rich as possible? How do you mean? Well, the reason the rulers in it are rulers, I take it, is because of their great wealth. So, if any of the young turn out to have no self-restraint, the rulers, predictably, are not prepared to restrain them by a law prohibiting them from spending what they own and losing it all. Their aim is to buy up the property of people like this, or lend them money with the property as security, and in this way become even richer and more highly respected. Yes, that is their overriding aim. And isn't it obvious by now in a city that a high regard for wealth is incompatible with the possession of self-discipline on the part of the citizens, they will inevitably lose interest in one or the other. Yes, that's reasonably clear, he said. So, through negligence and the consistent license they give well-born individuals to behave without restraint, the rulers in oligarchies can sometimes drive them into poverty. They certainly can. And these people, I take it, sit around armed in the city, in debt, or disfranchised, or both. They are the drones with stings, eager for revolution. They hate and plot against those who now possess their property, and the others like them. True. And presumably, the city turns into a democracy when the poor are victorious, when they kill some of their opponents and send others into exile 
give an equal share in the constitution and public office to those who remain, and when public office in the city is allocated for the most part by lot. Yes, he said, that is the way democracy becomes established, whether it happens by force of arms or because their opponents lose their nerve and go into exile. Very well, then. What will this regime, in its turn, be like? How will these people live? Aren't they free men, for a start? Isn't it a city full of freedom and freedom of speech? Isn't there liberty in it for anyone to do anything he wants? Yes, that's the reputation it has, he said. And where there is liberty, then obviously each person can arrange his own life within the city in whatever way pleases him. Obviously. The most varied of regimes, I would think, as far as human character goes. Of course. It's probably the most attractive of the regimes, I said. Like a coat of many colours, with an infinite variety of floral decoration. So, this regime will catch the eye with its infinite variety of moral decoration. Lots of people are likely to judge this regime to be the most attractive, like women or children looking at prettily painted objects. Indeed they will. There's no compulsion to hold office in this city, I said, even if you're well qualified to hold office, nor to obey those who do hold office if you don't feel like it nor to go to war when the city is at war, nor to be at peace when everyone else is, unless peace is what you want. Then again, even if there's a law stopping you holding office or being a member of a jury, there's nothing to stop you holding office and being a member of a jury anyway, if that's how the mood takes you. Isn't this, in the short term, a delightful and heaven-sent way of life? It probably is in the short term. And what about the relaxed attitude of those sentenced by the courts? Isn't it civilised? Or have you never seen people who have been condemned to death or exile in a regime of this sort, who nonetheless remain in person, hanging about at the centre of things and haunting the place, like the spirit of a departed hero, without anyone caring or noticing? I've seen plenty, he said. Then there's the tolerance of this city. No pedantic insistence on detail, but an utter contempt for the things we showed such respect for when we were founding our city. Our claim that only someone with an outstanding nature could ever turn out to be a good man, and only if from earliest childhood he played in the best company and the right surroundings and did all the right kinds of things. How magnificently the city tramples all this underfoot, paying no attention to what kind of life someone led before he entered political life, all anyone has to do to win favour is say he is a friend of the people. Ah, yes, that's true nobility. These and related qualities will be the ones possessed by democracy. You'd expect it to be an enjoyable kind of regime, anarchic, colourful, and granting equality of a sort to equals and unequals alike. Yes, that's a pretty familiar story, he said. All right, let's stop there. So he went through... Um how out of a uh, oligarchy a, a democracy arises when people start seeing uh you know he brought up about liberties and freedoms um and uh, he's going to get into that a little bit more uh and then we're going to explain uh, a little bit further so now we're going to touch on the democratic character okay so he's going to get even more specific about the character of man 
uh, of the democratic man, you know. So we're looking at these things kind of in a generic sense. Um, um, so, oh, and also I just wanted to point out, um, notice how he, how he said that in democracy, um, um, here, let me go right back up. Sorry. Where, where basically he says that the leader just has to say he is a friend of the people, you know, uh, he's going to, he's going to point in a little bit further in into that. But that was just something that kind of jumped out at me, so I wanted to point that out. So now we're going to go ahead and talk about the democratic character. In that case, I said, that leaves us with the task of describing the most delightful of regimes and the most delightful of individuals, tyranny and the tyrant. It certainly does, he said. Does tyranny arise out of democracy much the same way as democracy arises out of oligarchy? How do you mean? The thing they held up as an ideal, I said, the thing which formed the basis of oligarchy was wealth, wasn't it? Yes, it was the insatiable longing for wealth and the neglect of everything else and the pursuit of profit which destroyed oligarchy. True, he said. And is it the insatiable longing for what it defines as good which destroys democracy too in its turn? What is it, you say, it defines as good? Freedom, I said. This is the thing I imagine which in a democratic state you will hear described as its finest attribute and what makes it, for any free spirit, the only place worth living in. Yes, that is certainly something you often hear said. Well then, as I was saying just now, is it the insatiable longing for this good and the neglect of everything else which brings about a change in this regime too and creates the need for tyranny? How does that happen? he asked. I imagine it's when a democracy, in its thirst for the wine of freedom, finds the wine being poured by unscrupulous cup-bearers and when it drinks more deeply than it should of pure, unmixed freedom. Then, if its magistrates are not totally easy-going and do not offer it that freedom in large quantities, it accuses them of being filthy oligarchs and punishes them. Yes, he said, that is what they do. Those who obey the rulers are heaped with insults. They are regarded as servile non-entities. Praise and respect, whether in private or public life, go to rulers for behaving like those they rule, and to those they rule for behaving like rulers. Isn't the desire for freedom in a city of this type bound to run to extremes? Of course it is. And isn't the anarchy bound to make its way, my friend, into private households? Can we give an example of that? A father, for example, gets used to being like a child and being afraid of his sons. A son gets used to being like his father. He feels no respect or fear for his parents. All he wants is to be free. Immigrants are put on a par with citizens and citizens with immigrants, and the same with visiting foreigners. Yes, that's what happens. Okay, let's stop right there. Did you get what he Did you? I'm sure you heard exactly what he said. Um, but but so see, now just to back up a little bit, we're, we're looking at how a, dem a democratic society becomes a tyranny, right? So he's looking at the character of man, the character of man in the democracy that devolves into a tyranny so he pointed out a few things so he talks about 
in the society, in the democratic society, there's a thirst for liberty, right? We like liberty. Like, for instance, in, in, the Amer in America, we love liberty, you know, and we're guided by principles, you know. It's not a free-for-all, everything, everything goes, right? We're guided by rules and laws and everything. But, but he's looking at this stuff through a, general, through a general sense, right, in a generic sense, looking at it through a scope. Um, and when he's talking about liberty, um, uh, uh, let me see. So, for the thirst for liberty uh, may fall under the influence of bad leaders who intoxicate it with excessive quantities of the near spirit and then... Um, and then useless are the authorities, uh, very mild and give it a lot of liberty. Uh, let me see. Sorry. My eyesight is getting bad, guys. I apologize. Okay. So, so let's go on a little bit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Here we go. Um, for rulers to behave like their subjects and subjects to behave like their rulers. You know, you look around what's going on today. You know, we, we technically are the rulers. Um, in our society, right? Technically, because there there are certain they they uh, they work at the behest of us, the people in our government, correct? Um, but you see the bickering back and forth uh, between the citizenry and the leaders and the rulers, right? Um, and then some of the rulers want to act like citizens, and then, you know the twitters and the TikToks and the this and the that. You know, they want to show the people that they are like them, right? Now, as far as liberty, when he talks about liberty unrestrained, that, that's like when, when we think about, so see, we, we look at society and, and we have like, you know, what we would call like moral guidelines and those type of things, you know, murder, stealing, right? Those things. But when he talks about liberty, like he means all kinds of things screw morality, right? That's what he means. So when you think about society today, you know, uh, I mean, dude, you know, just think about, it. think about what people can do nowadays, right? If they want to terminate their pregnancy, they can. Morality, screw morality, right? Okay. All kinds of other stuff. But that's the kind of liberty he's talking about, you know, uh, taking liberty on each other's, scamming each other, or whatever, right? So he's going to go on, uh, he's going to keep going on a little bit more, um, describing um, more of the character that, that, that makes uh, a democracy become a tyranny. And it's going to get very interesting, guys. That, plus a few more trivial examples of the same kind, I said, in a society of this sort, teachers are afraid of their pupils and curry favor with them. Pupils have an equal contempt for their teachers and their attendants. In general, the young are the image of their elders and challenge them in everything they say and do. The old descend to the level of the young. They pepper everything with wit and humor, trying to be like the young, because they don't want to be thought harsh or dictatorial. Precisely, he said. But the extreme limit of freedom in a city of this kind comes when those who have been bought as slaves, whether male or female, are every bit as free as those who bought them. As for the relationship of women to men and men to women, I all but forgot to mention the extent of the legal equality and liberty between them. To generalize from all these collected observations, have you noticed how sensitive it makes the souls of the citizens, so that if anyone seeks to impose the slightest degree of slavery, they grow angry and cannot tolerate it? it okay, let's pause right there. Let me back up a little bit. Um, 
so when he when he says slavery let's look let's just back then they had the slavery but let's also think about subjugation or ruled over because when he uh, um, when he says um uh, oh here look ah uh, i'm sorry guys uh so you hear when he says um any slight um um hint of 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 enslavement you know that they they go they go bonkers right <laughs> here look in the habit of of grand freedom into the people meet uh you find their mind citizen becomes okay here you go um what it all adds up to is that you find the uh, that the minds of the citizens become so sensitive that the least vestige of restraint is resented and intolerable you find that the minds of the citizens become so sensitive that the least vestige of restraint is resented and intolerable. Think about laws and order, you know, smashing windows or blocking freeways, right? The slightest vestige of restraint. Hey, you can't be on the street. You can't be on the freeway. Fuck you. Watch this, right? Um, um, the part about becoming so sensitive, just think about, what, you know, where people are canceling each other because of what somebody said or whatever, you know. So when if, if we're if we're following along with with the, the his theory on on the on the devolution uh, um, of of democracy into a tyranny, I mean, we're noticing it right now in our society. OK, Socrates, the greatest mind ever of all time. Most likely, probably other than Jesus, but still, those are two. Oh, actually, you know what? Let's not even compare those two because they're t actually two very separate. Anyhow, Esteb, he has this correct because not only are we witnessing the stuff going on in our society right now, but in the history books, history already tells us that this is how it happens. And see, he's a philosopher, so he found this out by himself, by studying. Well, I mean, also through the histories and whatever, you know, he did. Pero, see, these things were revealed to him through thought and through meditation and through, you know. Uh, um, so these things were revealed to him. And look, look how precise so far his words are. Okay, so we're going to keep going. So right now we are, uh, he just talked about... Um, the sensitivity of the citizenry and it becomes intolerable any restraint you know um till finally as you know in their determination to have no master they disregard all laws written and unwritten they disregard all laws written and unwritten okay look around again look around again you see what happens you see how people how the how the mob or whatever you know and the, what they do, it's right here. Okay, let's go on. In the end, as I imagine you are aware, they take no notice even of the laws, written or unwritten, in their determination that no one shall be master over them in any way at all. Yes, I'm well aware of that, he said. This is the form of government, my friend, so attractive and so headstrong, from which I believe tyranny is born. Certainly headstrong, he said. But what is the next step? We mentioned the class of idle and extravagant men, the most courageous element leading, the least courageous element following. We compared them to drones, the leaders to drones with stings,
the followers to drones without stings. Rightly so. Very well. Let's make a theoretical division of the democratic city into three parts. After all, this is how it is, in fact, composed. This class of drones, I imagine, is one part, and because of the absence of restrictions, it grows at least as freely in a democracy as in an oligarchy. That is so. But it is much fiercer in a democracy than in an oligarchy. In what way? In an oligarchy, it is treated as of no value and excluded from power. So it gets no exercise and does not develop its strength. In a democracy, by contrast, barring a few individuals, it is the dominant influence in the state. The fiercest element in this class does the talking and acting. The remainder sit around the rostrum, buzzing and refusing to allow the expression of any other view. The result is that in a regime of this kind, everything, with very few exceptions, is run by the class of drones. Exactly he said. Then there's a second class, which always separates itself off from the majority. What class is that? When everyone is engaged in making money, presumably it is those with the most disciplined temperament who generally become the richest. Very likely. They provide a plentiful supply of honey for the drones, I imagine, and an easy source from which to extract it. Yes, he said. After all, they can't extract much from those who haven't got much. They're called the rich, these people we're talking about, the drone's feeding ground. That's about it, he said. The general populace would be the third class, manual labourers with little interest in politics and very little property of their own. This is the most numerous and powerful class in a democracy, but only when it is assembled together. It is... Okay, did you hear that? <laughs> wow, okay, so see, a couple of things. Um, the third group is the mass of people who earn their own living, take little interest in politics, and aren't very well off. They are the largest class in a democracy, um, and once assembled, are supreme. Now, Marx knew this. We brought up Marx uh, last time uh, on the other show. Marx knew this, and uh, you know, and when you hear these politicians these days when they talk about the middle class and all that, they're talking, you know, yes, th these words, these labels give us an idea of what they mean. And uh, so, so Socrates just explained who is this group, the majority of people who don't give a shit about politics, who just do their job, you know, work, or well, you know, just surviving, family, whatever. That's the majority of the people and once aroused they are the most powerful group okay um, you know political uh, types they're very keen on they know what they're doing you know I broke that stuff down but like for instance you know the whole push on trying to get everybody to vote even if it's online on the mail whatever they want to count everybody's vote because yes there is numbers in there now us as us as responsible citizens shouldn't just be voting for the heck of it, you know. That's that that falls on us as a responsibility. But anyhow, the power is in the masses. So we know that Socrates knows that Marx knows that. I mean, Salalinsky, all these 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 leftists, they, they know that, you know. So uh, the mind of the masses is key. Uh, you know, we we've heard of the term. Um, 
hearts and minds and you know and that's really that's really the key also but the character of the of mankind the character of not mankind but the character of the the democratic man you and i plays a big part in what happens in our society now you know i constantly talk about bettering ourselves for the same reason because when we better ourselves we better society now if we don't take care of ourselves and we fall apart and we just don't care and we're doing whatever and selling drugs and breaking rules and passing red lights and give you know what i'm saying like you said earlier disregard for all laws written or unwritten unwritten laws he means moral laws morality you know what i'm saying y'all know what i mean so that's what he's talking about here, okay? So just look around in society. You know what's going on. Look around, and he's explaining it right now. So, so we're going to continue. It is indeed, he said. But if it isn't getting some share of the honey, it is reluctant to assemble very often. That's why it always does get a share of it, if its leaders have anything to do with it. They take it away from those who possess property and distribute it among the people, keeping only the lion's share for themselves. Now, you know, we have a, a progressive income tax, right? And you always hear these leftists, these politicians talking about the rich need to pay more, the rich need to pay more. And then, of course, there's plenty of, of, um, of uh, you know, welfare is an ugly word, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of assistance, government assistance, housing, medical, you know, income, there's all kinds of stuff, right? So when he talks about the honey, that's what he means is, is something that the government, that the state, you know, I'm going to put this, the word state in quotes. Because when, we're, when he says state uh, or, or those type of terms, he means the government, right? So the honey that the government needs to give back to the people in, in those terms is like, you know, like I said, you know, public housing or medical, free medical, healthcare, these, these type of things, right? Because they need to give something back in order to rouse the people. Okay, so here we go. Yes, the people do get a limited share of that sort, he said. Those whose property is taken away are presumably compelled to defend themselves by speaking in the assembly and taking whatever other action they can. Of course, even if they have no desire at all for revolution, they are accused by the others of plotting against the people and being oligarchs. Naturally. In the end, when they see the people attempting to injure them, not maliciously, but out of ignorance, misled by their opponents, at that point, whether they like it or not, the rich really do become oligarchs, though not from choice. This, too, is an evil implanted in them by the stings of the drone we were talking about. It is indeed. Then you get impeachments, litigation and lawsuits between the two classes. You certainly do. And isn't there a universal tendency for the people to set up one single individual who is their own particular champion? Don't they feed him up and make him mighty? They do. All right, so... Um, I mean, yeah, it just goes to show... It goes to show how history has shown us that what he just said is correct, right? So in this struggle, don't the people normally put forward... Uh, a single popular leader for them um, uh, whom they nurse to greatness. You know, when we look at like uh, um, Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Tojo and, you know, these these type of people, este, they've, they've always come into power behind some movement, behind some big, you know, este, uh, 
you know, revolution or whatever. Sometimes it's not even, it could be like a cultural revolution, an ideological revolution, those type of things, right? And the people put forward somebody, a leader, a great leader to, to, to move them forward or whatever, right? And that's what he's talking about there. And I just wanted to point out, you know, when we look at any, I mean, think of any tyranny that, that we have in the history books. And, you know, look at how those people became power, how they got into power. And basically, he's breaking it down right there. So let's continue. So when we look at the growth of a tyrant, I said, one thing at least is clear. This position of champion is the sole root from which the tyrant springs. Yes, that's absolutely clear. In that case... What prompts the change from champion to tyrant? Isn't it pretty obvious that it happens when the champion of the people starts acting like the character in the story about the temple of Zeus, the wolf god in Arcadia? What story? he asked. That there is one piece of human innards chopped up among all the pieces of the other sacrificial offerings and that anyone who tastes it will inevitably turn into a wolf Oh, haven't you heard that story? Yes, I have heard it. Isn't it the same with the champion of the people? Once he really wins the mob over, the blood of his kinsman is no bar to him. He accuses someone falsely, as such people do. He brings him to trial and murders him, and as he rubs out a man's life, his unholy mouth and lips taste the blood of a butchered kinsman. Now, real quick, I just wanted to point out... Um it seems it seems like what he's what he's saying there is, um, you know, he brings up the story about the the human meat mixing the you know and this and that. As that, but it seems to be like when this leader, whoever this powerful leader is, once he has once he has one person killed, let's say, he tastes that blood, right? When he sees the power be, that that he wields, when the tyrant sees the power that he wields, and he and he sees that he can snuff somebody out. That is when it goes downhill. So that's the moment where it changes from a great leader to the tyrant. Let's continue. He drives people into exile or kills them, hinting at a cancellation of debts and the redistribution of land. What is the inevitable and predestined next step for someone like this? Doesn't he either have to be destroyed by his enemies or else become tyrant, turning from man into wolf. So see, they get to that point where, 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 you know, where they've gone too far. And the people, when they, people start seeing, uh oh, and then they start rising or whatever, right? So there's a moment when the people start noticing stuff. And that's the moment where the tyrant has to choose, you know, and like you said, that's when he becomes full wolf, you know, when he has his guard and they follow him and, and, and 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 the people who follow him have a disregard um, for others. So here, let me uh, right here. Uh, cancellations. I'm sorry, my eyesight. Uh, the math to do anything it tells that the tension to shed. Um, okay. Anyhow. Um, Oh, yeah, real quick. So when we, you know, I was telling you last time about how I'm a fan of Soviet history, right? And when you look at what Stalin did, I mean, this is exactly, he's about to break it down a little bit more. But, you know, exiles, executions, I mean, you start taking out everybody who might pose a threat to your power. That's the, that's the character of the tyrant. 
Um, let's continue. Yes, that is absolutely inevitable, he said. He becomes the architect of civil war against those who own property. He does. Notice he keeps talking about how the tyrant comes after those with property. When you hear politicians talk about people's money, how much people have and they should be paying more or whatever, that should tell you right away from the words of Socrates in Plato's Republic that they're telling you that they have a char the character of a tyrant. When folks talk to you this way, politicians specifically, because they're the ones that are trying to get into power, they're, they, they're letting you know that their character is of a tyrant because they, they want to come after people's money. And, and look, he's going to go further, but I just wanted to point that out. He's constantly pointing out about money because this is something that the tyrant does, okay? Because not everybody has money. The people with money is a small amount. The people without money is a larger amount. So by riling up the people, the larger amount, the poor people, see, you easily make the enemy, uh, the rich people, your enemy, okay? And we hear that constantly in modern society today. Just turn on any uh, any politician during any uh, of the uh, election seasons and you'll hear them blab off all this stuff, okay? Let's continue. Well then, if he's sent into exile but returns despite his enemies, doesn't he return as an out-and-out -out tyrant? Yes, obviously. And if his enemies are unable to drive him into exile or kill him by attacking him publicly, then they start plotting to kill him secretly, by assassination. Yes, that's certainly what tends to happen, he said. The tyrant's response to this is the famous request which everyone who has reached this stage discovers. He asks the people for a personal bodyguard to guarantee the safety of their people's champion. Indeed, he does. And they give him one, more worried about his safety than their own, presumably. Much more. Shall we then describe the happiness of this man and of the city where such a creature comes into being? By all means, let's describe it, he said. Very well. To start with, in the early days, doesn't he have a smile and a friendly word for everyone he meets? He says he's no tyrant and is full of promises both to individuals and to the state. Won't he have freed them from their debts, and divided up the land among the people and among his supporters? Doesn't he pretend to be universally kind and gentle? He's bound to. But I imagine that once he feels safe from his enemies in exile, being reconciled with some and destroying others, his first concern is to be constantly starting wars, so that the people will stand in need of a leader. Okay, real quick. I have this actually marked down for a reason in my book. Um, so earlier when I was talking about the politician saying certain things that should show you that, that they have a character of a tyrant. Here's another, here's another clue of their character. Now, he says that, um, that he is in the first place con uh, continue to stir up war in order that the people may need a leader, right? Okay, now correct. In those times, you know, with the wars and stuff, and yes, okay. But in modern times, since we don't have wars as we do, how we as we used to, let's use this metaphorically. The politician who is constantly starting wars with 
the rich, with the racist, with the political party, with this one, with the rednecks, with the white people, with the that one, with the blah, with the blah, with the blah, right? Constantly, constantly, constantly. Hey, look at this. Um, whatever. Constantly, you know, like I said, starting wars, but we're going to use that metaphorically as tumult, as, um, you know, these things that, that politicians do, that, and not just politicians, because we're, we're, we're talking about character of man i mean just look at your feeds look at how people um post something like in order to bait somebody right to to answer and then discussions and then they get into it and well because one leans left one leans right whatever it may be pro-life whatever right somebody throws out bait because they want to you know argue or troll or whatever it is you know anyhow that's the character and a person with that type of character in a position of power, uh, we should be very weary because the character of that person is of a tyrant. Okay? Uh, so let's continue. Very likely. And perhaps with the further intention that their contributions to the war will impoverish them, compel them to concentrate on their daily occupations and make them less likely to plot against him. Undoubtedly. And if there are some independent-minded people whom he suspects of challenging his rule, doesn't he try to find a good excuse for handing them over to the enemy and destroying them? For all these reasons, isn't a tyrant always bound to be stirring up war? Yes, he is. Doesn't this tend to make him increasingly unpopular with the citizens? Of course it does. Then the boldest of those who help to make him tyrant, and who are now in positions of power, start to speak their minds freely, don't they? Both to him and to one another, criticising what is going on. Probably. So the tyrant, if he wants to go on ruling, must be prepared to remove all these people until he is left with no one who is any use, whether friend or enemy. Obviously he must. Now, let me pause there. Think Stalin, think Hitler, think Mao, think Tojo, think all of these tyrants, think Castro. Notice what he just said. It's that it, when people begin to speak freely, when they, they he, he, let's back up. When, when they start disliking him, right, because of the power and what he behaves and, and they start plotting and everything. So, so then they start talking amongst themselves. Hey, man, this guy. So let's, let's, let's use historical terms. Hey, fucking Stalin, man. I don't like that shit. Yeah, man, my homeboy talking about Stalin, this and that, right? So then, um, uh, begin to speak freely and, and, uh, and blame him for what's happening. Man, it's fucking Stalin's fault. All this shit. Look, people are starving in the Ukraine. Yeah, man. Yeah. Secret police hears you. Uh oh. Secret police heard us. Shit. What happens next, right? When the secret police hears you, what happens next? Then, if he is to restrain power, if he is to retain power, he must root them out, all of them, till there is not a man of any consequence left, whether friend or foe. Go back, listen to uh, some of the docs on Stalin. This is precisely what he did in the Gulag Archipelago. Um, Solzhenitsyn explains it very vividly. <sighs> Look, anyone who poses a threat to the authoritative power of a tyrant, anyone, a priest, 
a, a teacher, a philosopher, anyone He must root them out, all of them, till there is not a man of any consequence left, whether friend or foe. Stalin killed off a lot of his underlings who were with him in the revolution. His buds, his right-hand men, those guys, he killed them off. Why? Because at some point he figured they might challenge his power, and that is a no-no. Okay, let's continue. He will need a sharp pair of eyes then. He needs to pick out the brave, the noble, the wise, and the rich, since it is his unavoidable good fortune, whether he likes it or not, to be the enemy of all of them. He must plot their downfall until he has got the city clean. A fine way to clean a city, he said. Yes, the exact opposite of what doctors do to the body. They remove what is worst and leave what is best. With the tyrant, it is the other way round. That's what he has to do, apparently, if he is to go on ruling. In which case, I said, he is firmly and inevitably impaled on the horns of a delightful dilemma, which requires him either to spend his life with the worthless mob and be hated by them into the bargain, or not to live at all. That's about the size of it, he said. And the more hated by the citizens his behavior makes him, the larger and more reliable a bodyguard he will need, won't he? Of course. Who are these reliable people, then? Where can he send to for them? They'll come winging their way of their own accord, he said, any number of them, as long as he pays the going rate. Dog's teeth. Drones again. Foreign ones, all kinds of them, I think you're talking about. Good. I haven't given you the wrong impression, then. And from the city itself, might he not bring himself... To do what? To deprive the citizens of their slaves, set the slaves free, and make them part of his bodyguard? Indeed he might. They are, after all, the most reliable he can find. What a wonderful thing you make a tyrant out to be. I said, if these are the people he has as his friends, the people he can trust, once he has destroyed the friends he started with. Well, these certainly are the kind of friends he has. So, while he enjoys the admiration of these friends and the company of these new citizens, do decent people hate him and avoid him? How can they help doing so? We have strayed from the point, however, I said. Let's return to that army the tyrant has, that fine, large, varied, and ever-changing army, and ask how it is going to be maintained. Well, obviously, if there's money in the city's temples, then as long as it lasts, he will spend that, plus the money of his victims, allowing him to exact smaller contributions from the people. But what happens when these run out? He will use his father's money, obviously to support himself, his drinking companions, and his male and female friends. I see. You mean the people who spawned the tyrant will support him and his friends? It will have no choice, he said. What if the people resent this? I asked. It is not right, they might say for a start, for a grown-up son to be supported by his father. Quite the reverse, in fact. A father 
should be supported by his son. What is more, the reason we fathered you and put you in power was not so that we could ourselves become slaves to our own slaves as soon as you became powerful and support you and them and the rest of your collection of human flotsam. We order you to leave the city now, you and your friends. What do you think would happen then? My God, he said. Then the people really will find out what they are and what kind of offspring they have fathered, taken to their hearts and allowed to grow. What do you mean? I asked. Will the tyrant use force against his parent? Will he beat him if he disobeys? Yes, once he has taken away his weapons. A parricide, then, this tyrant you are describing. Let me pause right there. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, once he has taken away their weapons, or his weapons. You know exactly. <laughs> we don't even got to go. Second Amendment, baby. But see, just back to the history books. You know, Mao, they, they all, all the tyrants have done this. They disarmed their population before, uh, before they go full tyrant, right? On the people. So that's what he meant right there. So let's continue. Describing a cruel guardian for man's old age. At this point, it seems, the thing is an acknowledged tyranny. The people have jumped out of the proverbial frying pan into the fire from their enslavement to free men to a despotism of slaves. Yes, that is how it happens. Will there be any objection, then, I asked, to our saying that we have given an adequate description of the way tyranny evolves out of democracy, and of what it is like when it has done so? No, he said, our description is perfectly adequate. All right. <laughs> I'm a geek, and I love this. This is my favorite book. Um... Man, I tell you, I don't even know how many times I've I've done the audiobook, uh, and this just blows me away. And I'm just so um, I'm so stoked to be doing this. Um, we are now in uh, book nine, uh, the tyrannical character. So he's going to break down the character of the tyrant, um, and then we're going to wrap up after that. So we are. Just about, we are just about there. So we are at part nine, book nine, the tyrannical character, Plato's Republic. Let's continue. As, as we're going through there and you're listening, kind of think of things that are going on in society. And when you, when you hear um, the character of the tyrant, um, keep in mind some of the words you've heard. Let's say some leaders speak. Uh, this is your moment then. Okay, just let's go. I said, your time has finally come. Like the judge of the contest making the final decision. There are five contenders. The kingly the timocratic, the oligarchic, the democratic, 
and the tyrannical. In terms of happiness, which of them, in your opinion, comes first? Which comes second? And so on with the other places. That's not a difficult decision. In terms of goodness and badness and happiness and its opposite, I rank them, like choruses, in order of their appearance. Shall we hire a herald then? I asked. Or shall I announce the result myself? The verdict of the son of Ariston is this. The best and most just character is the happiest. This is the one who is the most kingly, the one who is king over himself. The worst and most unjust is the unhappiest, and he is in fact the one with the most tyrannical nature, the one who is the greatest tyrant over himself and his city. Thank you, he said. Let's take it that the announcement has been made. And shall I add a clause saying whether or not they escape detection in the sight of all men and gods? Yes, do add that clause. Very well, I said. Let that stand as one proof for us. Now, have a look at this second proof and see if you think it has any force. How does the proof go? Like this. The three parts of the soul seem to me to have three forms of pleasure, one for each individual part. Likewise, three forms of desire and three forms of rule. Can you explain that? The first element, we say, is the one which allows a man to learn. The second, the part which allows him to act in a spirited way. To the third, on account of its diversity, we found it impossible to give its own unique name, so we gave it the name of its largest and strongest element. We called it desiring, because of the strength of its desires for food, drink, sex, and everything that goes with these, and money-loving, because money is the principal means of satisfying these desires. And we were right, he said. So, if we were to say that the thing it took pleasure and delight in was profit, would that be our best way of concentrating our argument under one general heading? Would that make it clear to ourselves what we mean when we talk about this part of the soul? And if we were to call it money-loving and profit-loving, would we be justified? Well, I certainly think we would. What about the spirited part? Can we say, by contrast, that its sole and constant aim is power, victory, and reputation? Yes, we can. So if we called it a lover of victory and a lover of honour, would that be appropriate? Absolutely appropriate. And, of course, it's obvious to anyone that the part we learn with is entirely and constantly intent upon knowing where the truth lies, and that of the three it is the least concerned with money and reputation. Easily the least. Would it be in order, then, for us to call it a lover of learning and a lover of wisdom? It would. Very well, I said. Is this the ruling element in some people's souls, and is one of the other two elements, it could be either, dominant in others? Yes, he said. Does this explain why we say that there are three fundamental human types, the lover of wisdom, the lover of victory, and the lover of profit? Of course. And three classes of pleasures, one corresponding to each type. Exactly. You realise, I said, that if you took the trouble to ask three people of this sort, one after another, which of these lives is the most pleasant, each would sing the loudest praises of his own. Certainly the money-maker will say that in comparison with profit, the pleasures of honour and learning are worthless, 
unless there is something in them which can make money. True. What about the lover of honour? I asked. Doesn't he regard the pleasure which depends on money as sordid, and the pleasure which depends on learning, except to the extent that learning brings reputation, as a load of hot air? He does. As for the lover of wisdom, or philosopher, I said, what view do we imagine he takes of the other pleasures, compared with the pleasure of knowing where the truth lies, and always enjoying some similar sort of pleasure while he is learning it? Won't he regard them as far inferior? And won't he call them truly necessary or compulsory, since but for necessity he could go on perfectly well without them? Yes, he said, we can be confident this is his view. Now think about it. Here are three men. Which of them has most experience of all the pleasures we have mentioned? Does the lover of profit learn about the nature of truth itself? Do you think he has more experience of the pleasure of knowledge than the lover of wisdom has of the pleasure of making money? There's no comparison, he said. The lover of wisdom is compelled to taste both pleasures right from his earliest years. The lover of profit, on the other hand, is not compelled to learn about the nature of things or taste and experience the sweetness of this pleasure. Even if he really wanted to, he would find it difficult. In which case, I said, when it comes to experience of both sets of pleasures, the lover of wisdom has a great advantage over the lover of profit. Yes, a great advantage. And does he have an advantage over the lover of honour? Or does he have less experience of the pleasures of being respected than the lover of honour has of the pleasure of knowledge? No, he said, if they accomplish what each individually sets out to achieve, they all find that recognition follows. The rich man is widely respected, so is the courageous man, and so is the wise man. So they all experience the pleasure of being respected. They all know what it is like. But only the lover of wisdom, the philosopher, is in the position of having tasted the contemplation of what is and the pleasure it brings. On grounds of experience, then, I said, he is the best judge out of these men. Much the best. What is more, won't he be the only one whose experience has been accompanied by reflection? Of course. And the instrument with which judgment should be made does not belong to the lover of profit or the lover of honour, but to the lover of wisdom. What instrument is that? We said judgment should be made using reasoned arguments, didn't we? Yes, and reasoning is essentially the instrument of the philosopher, the lover of wisdom. Of course. If wealth and profit were the best means of deciding questions, the truest recommendations or criticisms would necessarily be those of the lover of profit. Necessarily. And if honour and victory and courage were the best means, wouldn't the truest recommendations be those of the lover of honour or lover of victory? Obviously. But since experience, reflection and reasoning are the best means, the truest recommendations will necessarily be those of the lover of wisdom and lover of reasoning, he said. Of these three pleasures, then, will the one belonging to the part of the soul with which we learn be the most enjoyable? And does the person in whom this part rules have the most enjoyable life? How can he fail to? He said, at the very least, he's certainly giving an expert opinion, the reflective man, when he recommends his own life. Which life does our judge put in second place? And which pleasure? The pleasure of the warlike lover of honour. Obviously, it is closer to him than the pleasure of the money-maker. 
So, he puts the lover of profit's pleasure third, apparently. Yes, of course, he said. That's two wins out of two, then, for the just over the unjust. Now, we come to the third round. If you think about pleasure, you can see that for anyone other than the wise, it is not true and pure, but a kind of shadow picture. Or so I think I've been told by some expert. Explain, please, why pleasure is a shadow picture. Don't we say that pain is the opposite of pleasure? We certainly do. And that there is such a thing as feeling neither pleasure nor pain. Yes. Intermediate between those two, a kind of rest or respite for the soul from pain and pleasure. Or isn't that how you would describe it? That is how I would describe it, he said. Think of the things people who are ill say at times when they are ill. What sort of things? That there is no greater pleasure than good health, but that they hadn't realised it was the greatest pleasure until they were ill. Yes, I do remember hearing people say that, he said. And have you heard people in the grip of some agonising pain saying that there is no pleasure to compare with relief from agony? Yes, I've heard that. I expect you can think of plenty of similar painful situations people find. Okay, you know what? Let me stop right there. We went over a little bit. Because <laughs> now uh, we're into the types of character and the degrees of happiness. Now let's go back to what we were talking about earlier um, with the with the tyrant uh, and the character of the tyrant, and the way um, societies uh, change from a democracy into a tyranny. Instead, <clears throat> history is amazing. I love history. Now, this is philosophy. Um, it, but it just gives you. It just gives you an. Uh, a picture of how amazing uh, these Greek philosophers were uh, and how in-depth their their thought processes go. Um, Socrates is my absolute favorite. You know, if you... Uh, so this time, I'm going to... I am going to... This is my absolute favorite uh, version of the Republic. I am going to put the link in the description so you can hear it if you want to. It's pretty freaking amazing it's about four and a half hours long um the 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 guy who reads he does the voices really well um it's a really really good audiobook i know you're gonna enjoy it as much as i did especially if you love these little clips that you heard i mean the whole book is like that but when you get from the when you start from the beginning you get the whole gist of the it it unravels like it's not a story it's not fiction um, but the the quote-unquote story unravels from the beginning. Not unravels, but, you know, as you start, you see it begin. And then when it concludes at the end, you get this whole picture. Okay? Uh, the reason I wanted to point out those parts that I did was because of what we're going through in society today. Um, I... <sighs> I keep harping on this, but it's because what, what we what I want for you guys out there, what I want for the people out there is to have sight. And the way you're going to have sight is by educating yourself and by digging and digging and digging. As you look and as you dig and as you learn more, you start seeing these things a little bit clearer. I mean, look, um, in the Republic, he's explaining things precisely how they happen. 
you know, with the rich and then the disarming of the of the population and the mass and the power uh, accumulated in the masses, all of it. And he goes through all of this. So, see, we were talking um, in the sections that I picked out specifically was because it was like uh, about governing systems. Now, I only did democracy and tyranny, but he goes through oligarchy and monarchy. You know, he goes through the different systems of governing, of governance. And he breaks them down the same way um, that he broke this down on how the, how people set up a king and then this happens and that happens and then it becomes more an oligarchy. All these things. It's really amazing. I said we need to educate ourselves. We need to continue to educate ourselves. I am a nerd. When it comes to philosophy, you know, it translates into the love of wisdom. <laughs> I love philosophy. Like there's just so much to be learned. I mean, when you go, when you get into Aristotle, ethics or rhetoric, I mean, all these things, these great, great minds, Cicero was a lawyer, all these great, great minds. I really, if you haven't, if you have a, if you've never listened to any of these, everything's on YouTube, just audiobook it, whatever it is you're looking for. You know, I don't do fiction. I do legit shit. <laughs> You know, if I'm going to if I'm going to put hours into reading a book or listening to an audio book, I want it to mean something. I want it to 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 have value. You know, yes, fiction has value, definitely. But I think um, edu educational wise, <clears throat> um, there's 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 probably more value in something like like this, like Plato's Republic, you know, compared to. Lord of the Rings or, or whatever, you know, I ain't throwing salt on any of that. But what I'm saying is, is, you know, why not um, instead of 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 uh, something that isn't really going to uh, benefit you other than in an entertainment way? Why not put time into something that will actually benefit you in many different ways? Because the, it opens up doors uh, to other things, to other worlds, you know. The first, the very first, uh, this Plato's Republic was the very first book of philosophy that I that I that I read ever, um, and that was seven years ago, eight years ago, maybe uh, something like that. No, maybe a little less than that. But anyhow, and but it opened up the world of philosophy to me, you know. Um, the dialogues of Socrates, the uh, the Apology. Oh my God, those things are so amazing. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. If you're in, if you're into these things, if you have a, a desire to know these things a little bit more, man, just just go for it. You're not gonna be disappointed, okay? Um. Uh, let me see. I got some notes here. I don't know if there's anything uh, that I want to add. I said no, other than other than when you hear these, especially when you hear the Republic, and he gets into the different types of governing systems. If you do listen to it. And just keep in mind, when you're hearing these things, when you're reading these books, keep in mind what's going on in society today uh, and see if anything jumps out at you. You know, when you're listening to philosophers and, 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 and those type of things, or, or even when, when you're going through something historically, look at, at modern times and see if there's any similarities between the two. And like that, at least you can notice and acknowledge that, uh-oh, you know, uh, I don't think we're there yet, but these are um, like the the the, uh, 
the signs, right? The trumpets or, or whatever, and uh, you know, the, whatever word you want to use. These are signs that say, hey, society is going in the wrong direction. Okay. In Plato's Republic, he points this out. Socrates continually points it out. But not only that, we look at the religions. We look at Christianity and what Christ taught. We look at some of the, not, and not just Christ, we look at some of the um, prophets of the, Old, of the Old Testament. You know, we look at some of the other uh, historical figures um, throughout the world. Many of them have, have had this warning to mankind constantly about, in, in different ways, about behaviors and about what comes at the end and keep an eye out for the tyrant and this and that. And now look, now real quick, thesis. Wow, I haven't did, I haven't said that in a minute. Thesis. Now think about the tyrant, right? The way Plato, the way Socrates described the tyrant. And then think about what we know. You know, I'm going to nerd out on you a little bit right quick, but this is thesis. Think about the description of this character in the Bible that we call the Antichrist, right? This Antichrist person, whatever you may believe or whatever, but when you look at the story of whoever this person is, it's not a straight story. you got to get pieces from here and there. But basically, it describes a tyrant. It describes a tyrant, a ruler who turns on his people. A king is supposed to be a, a servant of the people. The main, the main, dis, uh, sorry, forgive me. We know in modern history, the model of the king, we model after Jesus Christ, the servant. The king is the servant of the people, okay? The antichrist, the opposite of the Christ, is a king who is not the servant of the people, but the subjugator of the people, the tyrant, right? If Christ equals kingly, then antichrist equals tyrant, so when we look at the stories that they talk about in the Bible about, about this Antichrist person, this is philosophy, but, but see, because it comes, a lot of it comes, some of it, sorry, some of it comes in the form of prophecy through the prophets, right? The prophets speak these words about this coming, you know, king who destroys or ruler who takes over and kills everybody or whatever, right? Um, in modern translations, we, 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 you know, the, Christ, the Christians developed that word, the Antichrist, to describe that same person, that same tyrant, the same destroyer of evil or whatever. And see, another clue, thesis, I'm on fire now, another clue is the ones, uh, in one of the, um, forgive me, uh, as far as exactly where it's at, but those of you who know the scripture knows that Jesus says, I will send, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, whoop, wrong part. There's a part where he talks about Antichrist, where he talks about that there's been, that there've been some before and that there will be more. Now, now, if, you know, in modern society and the church and everything, and I'm not going to get all churchy, but you know, people talk about the Antichrist, when is he coming and this and that. That's a misunderstanding of what this character, the quote unquote Antichrist is. When you think of Antichrist, think of tyrannical ruler, Mao. Hitler, Stalin, Tojo, all these people. Think of them because their character, the character of the tyrant, is parallel or equal, uh, equivalent or even almost exactly the same as what the, the scriptures say is the Antichrist or whatever, right? Anyway, little sidetrack, 
But this is thesis. And I just wanted to point that out. Because tyranny happens, and it has happened, and it will continue to happen. Only in a perfect world, only in a perfect society, only in a utopia, there is no tyranny. But we all understand <clears throat> that that's, that existence isn't possible. Utopia isn't possible. Heaven on earth isn't possible. Until whatever such, when they come, when Jesus comes, I said they, when God comes back, whatever. That's whatever that is, right? We're not going to go into that because I don't have those thoughts developed enough yet. But what I do, the thoughts that I do have developed is the part about the tyrant, the part about the quote unquote antichrist. That part I have very clear. And see, and if you start thinking things through this way, you will see that the message, not just in the Bible and not just in the, in the Jewish books, but in all these other ancient books that try to teach humanity some beneficial um, um, educational, something that for the betterment of humanity, right? When you look at those stories, um, it all, it all, everything is everything. That is not, that is not a, a, I don't, just not a throwaway line. When we look at what, what Plato just told us, when we think about what the scriptures in the Bible tell us, right? When we look at all these things together, why can't we see that? I mean, we can, but we can see that there is clearly a connection between all of them because they're all, they are all telling us a similar story of the tyrant of the of the king who destroys of the right and then we look at it historically with the with the Maos and all of them right with with uh, Stalin specifically because what Stalin did is very well documented what Stalin did is very well documented and I think that is why I have an affinity towards Russian history because it is just so uh right okay so that's why that's why we are what we are here. That's why this is thesis. And that's why the thesis that I just wanted to work on, and we are still going to work on it, and we're going to continue to work on it. See, I'm glad I, got, I, I'm glad I came on here with you guys today because this is part of what this is all about. Yes, we're going to have conversations, interesting conversations. I have some people lined up with some amazing stories. Yes, we're going to do that too. But we are also going to do this because education is key. Education is power. Education is strength. Education is authority. Okay? We want to broaden our vision. We want to remove the scales from our eyes, right? We want to see clearly, you know. We want to have sight again. These things aren't cliches. This is wisdom. This is wisdom. Philosophy means love of wisdom. That's what I love. That's what I'm here for. This is my passion. Guys, I want you to understand this. You know this by now because I harp on these books so much. And we're going to keep on. But this is my passion. I love it. I'm on fire right now. I feel it and I can keep going. I don't want to, you know, I wanted to be focused on a specific topic. So I'm going to not keep continue going because then we're going to go off on all kinds of tangents. So we're going to wrap here. But just... You know, keep in mind the things that you heard today. Keep in mind some of the things that I said. And like I said, always, please double check. Go do some research. Look into things. I might have said something wrong. I might have, um, uh, you know, uh, typo, but wordo, you know, because <laughs> we're live here. So, you know what I'm saying? Double check for yourself. 
you know and and if that little fire is is sparked inside of you that fire will grow continue to throw um wood in into that fire you know continue to feed it right how do you feed it feed it with stuff more reading more knowledge documentaries history whatever these things that are important things that that are going to benefit you uh in your life because by learning these things you know we become maybe more aware of our surroundings, more aware of society, more aware of our duties as a citizen, as a father, um, as a grandfather, as a brother, as a, you know, these things, right? We, we become aware of our duties and then in that, and, and when we become aware of our responsibilities, then we start changing ourselves to align ourselves with those responsibilities. So see, that is the picture that, that is the picture that I want to keep painting. And we're going to keep adding to that picture. But that is the that is the scope of it. That is the scope of it. Everything is everything because of what these books try to tell us. What we learn from the sciences, from the from the um um from the psychological sciences, from the social sciences. You know what I'm saying? We learn all these things. And the sciences, the sciences point to um, I'm sorry, the sciences verify a lot of what Socrates, Plato, and these philosophers from back in the day, all of them. The sciences um, show from what they say is true. Same thing with what we learn in the holy, in the holy writings uh, of not just Christianity or the Jews, but in all of the holy writings. Most of them, most, a, a lot of the story, a lot of stories are See, I'm going on on a tangent, but let me just clear my final thought. A lot of the stories are are written in different ways. Some are historical, some are uh, poetry, some are song, some are letters. You know what I'm saying? So when you read things, we have to know what we're reading. Is this a um, is it was this a vision that has been transcribed? Uh, is this is this a dialogue between two people? You know what I'm saying? Is this a historical reference? See what I mean? Is this a poem? Is this a song to the gods? Whatever. We need to know what we're reading and in what way it was written uh, so we can at least understand it a little bit better. And when we do that, man, there's, I mean, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. We want to understand. We want to know what we're reading. We want to know what we're learning. But at the same time, we want to dissect and we want to... Uh, uh, um, deconstruct and look and ask questions right i'm always talking about questions because the socratic method is about asking questions all right i'm done <laughs> i'm done i'm done that's it no more all right guys uh, i am going to put the description uh plato's republic in the uh i'm sorry the link in the description uh i want to thank you guys i uh, hope you enjoyed today's show school was in session uh thank you pupils for being uh, so attentive i hope you enjoyed today's um a lesson <laughs> now i just want to thank you guys and i want to tell you you know just just be the best you can man go out there and conquer conquer your world man you know the world around you your family your your household your job that's your world conquer your world man conquer it men and women all of you go out there conquer your world be the best you can be you know and uh, let's do this together let's keep learning let's keep educating ourselves let's keep going for it i want to thank you guys again for stopping by, sorry, I haven't had <laughs> a lot of material out, uh, but we're working, we're, we're working on it, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you guys hanging dry, okay, uh, so check back soon, 
Um, props to my people in Dublin. Hey, please, guys in Dublin, send me a, um, a email. It's in the description. I'd love to hear from you guys. Get a shout out. All right, guys, uh, check back soon. You know I love you guys. Uh, if you're new to the show, uh, if you like, please subscribe. Tell your friends about it uh, and check back soon. Uh, we don't put out content every day, but every couple days. So just uh, subscribe so you'll get the notification. Uh, love you guys. Love you guys. Love you guys. Love you guys. Um, <sighs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love you, man. Thanks. I love this. All right, guys. Thank you. Peace. Stay safe out there, okay? See you soon.